You're listening to an audio sermon from Trinity Bible Chapel. For more information, please visit our website at trinitybiblechapel.ca. This is what one commentator said is Matthew's majestic and joyous culmination. This is the climax of Matthew. If you've been following the plot line since I started in... uh, before Christmas 2017, and here we are, we've finally reached the high point of Matthew today. So it's been a slow, steady climb, and now we have arrived. Matthew 28, verses 1 through 10. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow, and for fear of him the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He's not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay, then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. Behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Let's pray together. God in heaven, we pray now that the word of God has been read for your blessing upon it. We pray that you would strengthen us, you'd give us understanding and wisdom, you'd encourage the hearts of your people today. May we grow in love and holiness, and oh God, would you save sinners as Christ is lifted high among us. Empower the preaching and hearing of your word by the the person of your Holy Spirit, and it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. So by this point, Christ is, as we began this text at least, by this point, Christ is dead and buried. Last week, we learned that it was Pontius Pilate, the representative of Rome, used all the power available to him, all Roman power, to guard the tomb so that those dreaded words, the words that were dreaded by the religious leaders, he's risen on the third day, would never be uttered. And they even went to the point of sealing the tomb with a Roman seal because they wanted to use all the power and perceived integrity of Rome to ensure that the tomb itself was protected and that those words were not uttered. The religious leaders were terrified of of Christ's prophecy that he had risen on the third day. And we find that Throughout the history of the church, the confession that he has risen on the third day, the confession has been the decisive confession of Christianity. You are not a Christian if you don't believe in the resurrection, the bodily resurrection. In order to be a Christian, you must believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you don't believe in it, you're not a Christian. And so this 
is a decisive text. And as such, it is very, very important that all of you come to it with believing hearts. It validates, the resurrection validates all of Christ's claims. And in validating all of Christ's claims, it validates His atonement. It validates our own hope in the resurrection of our bodies. As the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. I hope you understand that. If this is not true, you have wasted your time and energy as a Christian and you're a total fool. If, however, conversely, if Christ is risen from the dead, then no, you are not a fool, but you are wise and you are not to be pitied of all men, but to be envied of all men. Because you have the knowledge of the resurrection. Beyond that, as we've come through this text, we've been wondering what will happen if you're reading it for the first time, and sometimes I like to imagine I am, just to remember where all the cliffhangers are and not spoil the plot. You've probably been wondering if you've, like me, pretended to read it for the first time, what will happen with these lapsed disciples? Because they've all lapsed. Now, we know what happened to Judah. He died and went to hell when he killed himself. But with the other 11, what has happened to them? And what will happen to them? And so this is a point of tension right now, especially Peter, who was in Christ's inner circle. What will come of dear Peter as he denied our Lord now three times? And since the crucifixion, there's been this quiet little subplot in the background. The Holy Spirit is the master storyteller as He retells history for us, and He uses all the great literary devices. And so there's this sneaky little subplot back there, and you see it first come up in verse 56 of chapter 27, where it tells us that Mary Magdalene and the Mary, the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee was there at the crucifixion watching. And then in verse 61, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb at his burial. And so these two Marys have now come to our attention in the background two times. And today these two Marys, these two lovely ladies who quietly sought the Lord when their church leaders failed, these two ladies who quietly sought the Lord, when their church leaders failed them, i.e. the apostles hiding, they quietly sought the Lord when their leaders failed them. Today, they find the one they were looking for. They find the one who they sought, proving that Christ's promises are true. And what are Christ's promises? Well, among them, we have the promise of seek and you will find. Knock 
and the door will be answered. And these ladies, these dear saints of God, there was nobody there at the death of Jesus to tell them, to preach to them about the Lord. But yet, despite the failures of the apostles, they continued to seek him. And today, they find him. That's an important lesson for you and me. That's an important lesson for you. No matter how insignificant you might perceive yourself, if you earnestly seek Christ, he will reward you because you will find him. If you earnestly seek him. Even if all the leadership and all the official Christians fail, if you quietly, earnestly seek the Lord, you will be rewarded by finding him. And I've had people come to me many times after the service for prayer, wanting to know how to become Christians, if they can ever be delivered out of the misery of their sin, not understanding the gospel, even if I explain it to them. And so instead of mechanically leading them in a prayer, what do I typically exhort them to do? Seek him, and you will find him. Seek him, and you will find him. And so if you're here today, and you're lost in your sins, and you're in darkness, and you want to know Jesus. How can I know Jesus? You want to be forgiven for your sins, and you'll wonder whether you're really a child of God, and you want to be a child of God. I'm not here to offer you a mechanical prayer to pray or a series of rituals to go through. I'm here to lift up these two ladies as an example to you and say, seek him earnestly, and you will find him. Oh, you will find him. And when you find him, it will be the most rewarding find you have ever found. And he will satisfy your soul, and you will meet Jesus. And when you meet Jesus, you will know you've met Jesus. So seek him. Seek him, and you will find him. But let me outline my sermon today as I develop this majestic and joyous culmination of Matthew's gospel. We have in our text today the angel over the tomb, the witnesses at the tomb, and the Savior out of the tomb. That's easy to remember, isn't it? If you get lost, that's easy to remember. The angel over the tomb, the witnesses at the tomb, and the Savior out of the tomb. Let's talk for a moment about the angel over the tomb. Two ladies visit Jesus in verse 1 of chapter 28. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. They visit the, Jesus. They visit the tomb. They go to seek Jesus. You have to understand that the world has turned on Jesus. The Roman government has turned on him. They killed him, crucified him. The Jewish leadership and the angry Jews of Jerusalem, they demanded that he be killed, and the Jewish leadership turned on him and accused him of blasphemy and treason. The disciples have all fled. 
So there's no church leadership left. If you want to see it as the early nascent church, there's no church leadership to be seen. Everybody has turned on Jesus except a small little few who are starting to emerge here and there in the darkness. And these women who seek him, Mary and Mary Magdalene, emerged first seeking him at his crucifixion when everyone else forsook him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, the mother of the sons of Zebedee. They're at the cross, watching, seeking the Lord. And then they emerge again, as I noted, at the funeral of Jesus, when he's buried. And what does it say? But in verse 61, at the burial of Jesus with Joseph of Arimathea there, Nicodemus, two members of the Sanhedrin, burying Jesus. Where were, who was there for, is, the, is the congregation of the funeral? Verse 61, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. And so we notice that the two Marys have now emerged yet again. And in emerging yet again, this time, the last time we saw them was on the Friday well, this is the Sunday, the first day of the week, the day after the Sabbath, we see in verse 1. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day. And so the Jewish calendar was structured around the Sabbath day. Jesus was, buried on the, or was crucified and buried on the day before the Sabbath. The religious leaders secured the tomb with the Roman guards and the Roman seal on the Sabbath. And Mary Magdalene and the other Mary go visit the tomb the day after the Sabbath, are just at the crack of dawn. It's early morning, and isn't that a beautiful picture? Just as the light is cutting across the dark sky, these women go to meet the Lord, looking for Jesus at the tomb that the guards sealed. But not only are these women at the tomb... But so is somebody else, and that somebody else, or others, I guess you could say, not just somebody, are the Roman guards. The Roman guards are there guarding the tomb. And these ladies show up early in the morning, just at the break of day, to visit the tomb, and they likely saw the Roman guards outside on their watch to ensure that the body stays in the tomb, and nobody ever utters those dreadful words, he is risen, at least dreaded by the wicked. But there's somebody else at the tomb, quite amazingly. Not just the guards, not just these two dear saints of God, these two ladies, but there's somebody else. And boy, are we in for a surprise when this somebody else shows up. Verse 2, and behold... There was a great earthquake. So the word behold there should trigger you to imagine this in your mind's eye. So when you see behold, what it's telling you is picture this in your brain. So picture this. Two ladies making their way to the, visit the tomb of their Lord that they loved and sought. A number of guards outside the official Roman seal on the tomb. And picture this, there was a great earthquake. Now, the last earthquake was in chapter 27, verse 51, at the death of Jesus. 
And you might remember when I talk about that at his death, it says, Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. That was on the Friday, the day before the Sabbath. Well, here we are on the day after the Sabbath, and we have another earthquake two days later. And what we learned that often changes in the environment are the result of spiritual realities. Okay? Not always. See, in, in our 21st century mind, in this modern age in which we live, we love to explain things within scientific terms. But if you pay attention long enough, you will find that, yes, there are lots of lovely scientific explanations because the Lord has ordered the wor world in a certain way, so certain things are scientific. But... If you pay attention long enough, you will learn very quickly that not all things can be explained scientifically. In fact, most things can't be. The scientists have learned much, and there's much to learn from them, and there's much to learn through the natural sciences, but there are many things that can't be explained scientifically. If they, if they could be explained scientifically, perhaps we would have a better chance of predicting these disasters like earthquakes. But, as it is, we have not arrived at the point where such events can be predicted in a way that would be most helpful to us. And so, what we see in the Bible is what we, is the assumptions that we should operate on also is that the pressures of spiritual realities often provoke drastic changes in the environment. And this is why you have two earthquakes within the spread of three days, because there is something significant going on. These are not opportunities. I don't want this, I said this last time, to become a distraction from my sermon, because there's more important things in the text here than this. But it must be said in this godless age, these are not opportunities to be taxed by the state to solve the environmental problems, okay? When there is radical shifts in the environment or perceived shifts in the environment, very often we would be better off being like the medievals or like those who understood God in biblical times to note that they are often pointing to the pressures of drastic spiritual realities, which is the case here. So, when we have thunder snow, instead of thinking climate alarmism, as the news media would like you to think, and would like you to beg for more and more carbon taxes, oh, please save us, dear government. You should be wondering in awe if indeed the heavens are erupting over the present spiritual decline of our country and if indeed God perhaps is getting ready to bear his arm. That's what you should be thinking. Is God on the move? And this is certainly what Matthew is telling us by pointing to these environmental realities 
coinciding with spiritual realities. As John Trapp said 400 years ago about this text, but the true reason of the earthquake was our Savior's rising from the dead in despite of infernal spirits who therefore quaked as much as the earth did. Do you understand? Hell was quaking. And because hell was quaking, God saw to it that the earth quaked. And beyond that, as Matthew Henry said, the earth leaped for joy in his exaltation. If nobody would stand up and praise the Lord, and if nobody would sing praises to God Almighty over the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God would ensure that the earth itself would declare that He is risen, and that He is risen indeed. And so, what provokes the earthquake? Well, we see it in verse 2. Behold, there was an earthquake. What provoked it? For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven. So this is a, that, that's quite the picture because remember you're supposed to behold. What does it look like an angel of the Lord descending from heaven? And how far away from earth is heaven? How quick is that descent? How slow is that descent? What do you feel? Is there a wind from that descent? Is there a bright light from that descent? Is there a sound at that descent? Surely the earth quaked at that descent, but you're supposed to behold it. But the problem with beholding it is you're left with all these questions in your mind of what am I beholding because I've never seen an angel descend from heaven before. Well, behold it. He actually descended from heaven and he came. So he arrived at the tomb. Just as the women are arriving at the tomb. What a picture. And just as the guards are on their little patrol, with all the power of Rome, making sure that those words are never uttered, he is risen. And not only does he descend from heaven, not only does he come, but what does it say? He rolled back the stone. Now, remember the stone. Oh, remember the stone. It was a massive stone, we were told earlier in the Gospel of Matthew. And the stone would have been rolled downhill and lodged in front of the tomb, which was a tomb that was carved out of a rock, and it would have been secured. And the only way to remove this stone would have been to move it uphill. And the only way to move the stone uphill would be to get past the Roman guard. And then once you get past the Roman guard, you have to break the official seal of Rome on the tomb. So this angel came from heaven, this angel removed the stone that required to be moved uphill. This angel got past the Roman legion, or the Roman guard, and this angel broke the mighty seal of Rome. Who has more power over the superstate? God does. And a superstate that doesn't realize and doesn't acknowledge the supremacy of God will soon have their seal destroyed. And then that, what does this angel do? Having descended from heaven, having come to the tomb, having broken the seal past the Roman armies, he sits. Did you see that? He came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. 
And the verb indicates that he sat for a while, actually. It's not like he just sat down for half a second, but the verb is indicating to us that he was sitting there for some time. So I, I do find it to be an amusing picture. Because you have the Roman army out front, the guards, there's multiple guards, I don't know how many there are, there's several. You have the seal defiantly broken, you have the stone rolled away, and then you have this angel who's just come down to earth sitting defiantly, is a dissident to Rome on top of the stone. And it's, you, you, can you picture, because you're supposed to behold this, right? You're supposed to envision this. Behold, that's what it said. I don't know what he looked like up there other than the text tells us, we'll see in a minute, he was as bright as lightning and his clothing was as white as snow. But what were, what were his mannerisms? I mean, was he sitting on that stone, like tapping his fingers with a smirk on his face? Right? Like, or, or what, did he have his arms crossed? And, and was he grinning and winking at the guards? I don't know, but I do know that the God who sent him was sitting in the heavens laughing. So, so maybe he was sitting there representing what God was doing in heaven, and it is quite likely that he was sitting there with a smirk or a grin as he watched everything unfold in that moment and understood what it meant for all of humanity and all of history. But what a beautiful picture. The angel sitting on the stone that was sealed by Rome, a seal that he broke, a seal that he, or a stone that he rolled away. Now, let's say you were that angel. You don't look like that angel. You don't have the power of that angel. You weren't sent from heaven to come down to earth. But let's say you were that angel. And you went up to that stone and somehow you figured out how to break the Roman seal and move the stone away. And you saw those Roman armies, that Roman, those Roman soldiers standing there guarding the tomb. They're armed. They're lethal. They're killers. What are you going to do? You're probably going to run. You're not going to sit there. You're going to run. So this isn't just a defiant sitting. This is a daring sitting. It's kind of like he's got this come get me look on his face. As he sits on the tomb, and he sees the soldiers there, and the authority of Rome has been violated. Oh, what a glorious sight this is as we picture him, defiant, and as we picture him sitting there, and we picture him victorious over this stone. And what does he look like in verse 3? We find that this angel, as I noted, his appearance was like lightning. You ever seen lightning? Did you see lightning the other night? Did you see it light up the sky, flash across the horizon? And what did that lightning look like as it reflected off the snow? Was it bright? Did it light up the dark sky? Well, we're told here that this angel looked like lightning and his clothing was white as snow. So you get the picture. If you looked out and you saw during that thunderstorm or the, the thunder snow that we had, and you looked out and you saw the lightning come across the sky, and you saw it not just light up the sky, but reflect across off the freshly fallen snow, you now can behold in your mind what this angel looked like. 
What did he look like? Well, his face was as bright as the lightning that you saw in the sky, and his clothing was as bright and white as the snow that you saw on the ground when that lightning lit up the sky. That's what he looked like. He had form. He had clothing because we're told that his clothing was as white as snow. He took on form. When God sends angels, they often take on form. When angels visit us, they take on form. He was glorious as the lightning and pure as the snow because he'd just come from the presence of a glorious and pure God. And so it was the glory of God that was reflecting off of his face. Because remember, he'd just come from heaven. He'd just been in the presence of God. And so he was pure and he was glorious. And that was a reflection of the God that he had just been with. And he sits there on the stone that he moved after breaking the Roman seal and defying the Roman armies, victorious and triumphant, because now heaven is rejoicing and God is sitting there laughing. And I suspect the angel knows it, and therefore he's joining him. We have the angel over the tomb. The angel over the tomb. Not only do we have the angel over the tomb, but we have the witnesses at the tomb. There's witnesses. There were several eyewitnesses to this angelic arrival, and they had varying experiences depending on where they stood with Christ. Their standing with Jesus Christ determined what their experience of the resurrection was. And so will your standing with, the, with Jesus Christ determine your experience of the second coming of Christ and the final judgment. There were two parties at the tomb who were witness to the angel and who were witness to the resurrection. And those two parties have varying experiences depending on their standing with Jesus Christ. We have the guards. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Do you understand? They trembled and became like dead Roman guards. They were killers. Do you understand the Roman guards were trained killers? They were armed men. They were hardened men of combat. They'd think nothing of killing. They'd think nothing of nailing a man to the cross. They were programmed to obey orders. They were crass and they were rude and they were vulgar. And at the sight of the angel, the alive guards became dead. Well, the dead Christ became alive. They were trembling with fear over the sight of the angel. And you know, I can't think of an easier job than to stop a dead body from coming out of a tomb. I mean, really, if you were going to be paid by the hour to stop a dead body from leaving the tomb, I mean, how safe of a job is that? How easy of a job is that? I mean, that's what they call easy money. Right? That's easy money. And they couldn't do it. If somebody came to you and offered to pay you by the hour to keep bodies from coming up out of the ground in the graveyard, what would you do? You can do this on your spare time. Here's your night job. I'll pay you 40 bucks an hour. And you can sit there and you can play cards and smoke with your buddies. 
Because those bodies aren't coming up out of the grave. I can't think of an easier job. And that's what they would have thought in their minds. <laughs> You're going to pay us to guard a tomb? Really? To keep a body in there? Really? Their only job. They had one job. One job. Keep a dead body in the tomb. Killers! But they failed. But they failed. And they failed miserably because the killers became so afraid that they became like dead men and trembled. What does a dead man do? He falls on the ground. What does a trembling dead man do? He falls on the ground and trembles. Do you picture it yet? Are you beholding it in your mind's eye? And so you know why the angel's sitting on top of the rock and likely laughing. Because God's sitting in the heavens and laughing. We know that. And the angel sits on the rock. I don't know whether he had his arms crossed. I don't know whether he had a smirk. I don't know whether he, had his, he was tapping his fingers. I don't know whether his feet were hanging off the rock just dangling and kicking back and forth. I don't know. But he stood there relaxed as he watched these killers on the ground lying there trembling. Well, that's their reaction. That's the witnesses' reaction. But there's other witnesses there too. Verse 5 says, But the angels said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you, see the word, seek Jesus who was crucified. Do not be afraid. The emphasis in the Greek text is on you. He's telling them, stop. You stop being afraid. Telling them to stop what they've already been doing. Well, his job was to terrify the soldiers to death. His job was also to comfort the women who were seeking Jesus. That is because the soldiers were the enemies of Jesus, but the ladies were his friends. The ladies had standing with the king, and therefore the king's messenger was sent to comfort their anxious hearts, and the soldiers had no standing with the king, and therefore the king's messenger was sent to make them like dead men trembling on the ground. And that is the way when the messengers of God appear. That is the way it should be when the word of God is preached with the spirit of power. Is the word of God when it is preached, no matter how sharp, no matter how touchy, and God's presence is manifested in the preaching of God's word, it will cause sinners to tremble like dead men, and it will comfort God's people who've come to seek him. Always. Always. Because God's people will come to Jesus, and in his thundering word, they'll hear his gentle voice. But the sinners will only hear judgment. And this is what these men hear. His job was to terrify the soldiers, and his job was also to comfort the women, because the soldiers were the enemies of Christ, but the women were his friends. And the angel heralds the resurrection and produces evidence in verse 6. He is not here, verse 6 says. They're talking, he's talking to the women. For he has risen. <laughs> Those were the words that weren't supposed to be said. Don't you remember? There was like hate speech laws against them or something. <laughs> they can't be said. We've got legislation from Rome. Let's make sure it doesn't happen and send a guard. <laughs> They're said. Whoopsie. Right? 
He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. And then look at the evidence. Come see the place where he lay. And so this is, this is phenomenal. You've got grown men, killers, convulsing on the ground in fear. You've got an angel sitting on a tomb that is as bright as lightning with clothes as white as the snow. And you've got two humble women strolling in on the scene. The angel goes up to the women and says, hey, don't be afraid. Come have a look in here. What a scene this is. You've never seen anything like this, have you? Well, imagine it because you're told to. And just as Christ prophesied, and just as the authorities feared, He is risen. How about that? Aren't you happy? Aren't you happy? First to know of the resurrection of Jesus Christ are the humble ladies who sought Him while His disciples were hiding. The two humble ladies who sought our Lord, were able to provide a collaborated or a corroborated testimony of the resurrection of Jesus Christ while the disciples had run and hid. And not only are they the first witnesses to the empty tomb, but they are exhorted to become the ones who make the announcement to the apostles in verse 7. Because look at what the angel says. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. They, these two ladies, these two humble ladies who who were back in the background when Jesus was standing there with his inner circle with the apostles around him, they who were observing from a distance are now invited into this private conversation and are being told that they're the ones that have the private information and they are the ones that have the privileged information and they are the ones that are going to tell Jesus' inner circle about what's happened. How about that? The apostles' failure means the ladies become the apostles to the apostles. Wow. And this is the way it typically goes, by the way. When the church leadership fails, it is God that will use the humble and the meek and those who are perceived as weak to shame the ones that are perceived as wise and strong. Look, if somebody comes to us with a word from Scripture and they are able to properly explain it to us from Scripture, this is what the Scripture says. No matter what standing that Christian has, it's upon us to receive it. Now, we can talk about the proper meaning of it and we can go back and forth on that, but if another believer has insight on the Word of God, it's upon us to seek the understanding and to receive it. And these ladies became the apostles to the apostles because they had failed. The apostles had. And the ladies had sought him when the others were hiding. What a beautiful picture of the mercy of our Christ. And not only 
Are they to announce the arrival or the resurrection of Jesus Christ to the apostles and to go and tell them what has happened, but they are promised that they will see him? Right now, they've only seen the angel, but they're to go to Galilee, and they're to see him. What is it, seven? Or what does it say in verse seven? And behold, he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him. See, I have told you. There's sweet memories of Galilee. In fact, in chapter 26, verse 32, Jesus, predicting his death and resurrection, said to his disciples, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. See, Galilee is the sweet place. You ever, ever, ever since he entered Jerusalem, it's been getting darker and darker and darker and darker and more miserable and more miserable and more miserable and more miserable. It's just, it's, it goes from bad to worse, and just when you think it can't get any worse, it gets worse yet, right? You have Jesus taking on the Pharisees. The Pharisees are attacking Jesus. You have the plot to crucify Jesus. You have the falling away, the lapsing of the disciples and the apostles, the, the, the self-murder of Judas, and it goes on and on and on. It gets worse and worse and worse to the point that Jesus dies and he's abandoned. But now Galilee, well, that's a sweet memory. That's where the miracles were. That's where the preaching was. That's where he sat us down on the green grass and fed the thousands. That's where we ate with the Lord. And that's where we saw his gentle care for the children and his love of the lepers and him cast out demons and him heal the sick. And the crowds, the crowds, the crowds, the crowds, they flocked not to kill him, but to hear from him and meet him. Galilee. Oh, don't you remember that sweet place called Galilee? And that's what it's triggering in their mind. Yes, Galilee, where the grass is green. Galilee. We get to go back, and the good shepherd is going to lead us and gather us on the green grass of Galilee. And so the angels tell these dear women, there you will see him. In Galilee, just like old times, ladies. And there the disciples will be. And there the good shepherd will gather his flock. And there he'll lead them by still waters. And there they will rest on green grass. Just like it once was. But even better. Because he's risen. And he's conquered death. In Galilee the place of preaching and feasting and miracles and crowds that had come to see him. And thus, the witnesses at the tomb are contrasted. You have the soldiers who are trembling on the ground, and you have the women that are now light on their feet with butterflies in their stomach because their memories have been triggered of the sweetness of Galilee. Their fears have been quelled. And they're going to meet Jesus. What a beautiful picture. All while the Roman soldiers cower. Well, I've talked to you about the angel over the tomb. I've talked to you about the witnesses at the tomb. Now what I want to talk to you about is the most important feature of this morning's sermon, which is the Savior out of the tomb. You've been waiting since, I don't know, like Christmas of 2017 when I started this series. 
November 2017, you've been waiting for this moment. Are you ready? Because here it is. Everything's now resolved at this moment. It all makes sense by now. And notice the spring in their step, having been told that they'll see Jesus in verse 8. Look at what they do. So, they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. So, like, they're visiting the tomb that's empty. The soldiers are convulsing on the ground. They're looking at an angel that is as bright as lightning, whose clothes is as white as snow, and he's telling them they're going to meet Jesus. Go to Galilee. It's not like they take a moment and keep staring at this guy's face. My, he's bright. That's not happening. And it's not like they're taking a moment just to absorb in the picture of seeing these soldiers convulse on the ground. And they're not taking in the fact that they just walked into the Savior's empty tomb and they see that his linen cloths are there folded. They're not taking in any of that. As soon as he says, go to Galilee where you can meet him, what do they do? Gone. We want to meet Jesus. Forget about this angel with the bright face. I want to see Jesus. See the love of Jesus in these women? The delight that they have in their Savior? So they departed quickly and they ran. We're told that they still possessed a little bit of fear here. You see that? In verse 8, they had fear, but the joy was greater. There's no modifier on fear, but there's a modifier on joy. They had great joy. The joy was greater. And I imagine the onslaught of emotions as they've been seeking him since Friday, and here it is Sunday, and they get to meet Jesus after seeing this angel. And therefore, the angel sent them on a mission, and they obediently pursue it. And as they enthusiastically pursue Christ, guess what happens? Verse 9, you got this? Behold. There's another one. Picture this. Behold, Jesus met them and said greetings. Could you imagine that picture? Like, they just, boom, out of there. We want to, forget about the angel, forget about the empty tomb, forget about the convulsing surges, let's go. And then, boom, Jesus met them and said greetings. Like, that's a greeting you've, like, what a greeting. Greetings. Greeting. Like, what did their faces look like? The interesting thing in this text is, is these women never say a word. They, they don't say a word. They just seek Jesus. They seek Jesus. They worship Jesus, but they don't say anything. And here it is. They meet him. Or he. No, 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 no. Hold on. Hold on. He meets them. He meets them. That's what it says. He took the initiative. What did they do? They sought him, so he met them. There's a lesson for you in that. You seek Jesus, he will meet you. When, I don't know. How, I don't know. Where, I don't know. You seek Jesus, he will meet you. And they've been seeking him in the darkest of places. They sought him at the cross. They sought him at his funeral. They sought him at his tomb. And they still go seek him, and he meets them. He meets them. Note their response as he meets them. And behold, Jesus met them in verse 9 and said, Greetings. They don't say anything. And they came up, and they took hold of his feet and worshipped him. They just fall on their faces. We've seen the king, and he's risen. It's like a dream. And they just grab his feet. And they're on the ground. I imagine they're weeping. I can't imagine the emotions that are welling up inside of him, inside of them as they've sought him, and they hold on to his feet, 
worshiping their dear Savior right there. What a picture of their love for Christ as they see the resurrected King. And then Jesus speaks in verse 10. Then what sweet words these would have been to these women. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. And by the way, he, he's repeating what the angels already said, do not be afraid. And, and then Jesus says, go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. And, and what did, the, what did the, the angel say? The angel said, go and tell my disciples to go to Galilee. Do you see the similarities? Do not fear. Jesus sends them on a mission. You're going to tell the apostles things. You're actually going to point the apostles to the resurrection, kind of like the apostles to the apostles. And, and then, and then like, like the angels, he tells them to go tell the men. Like the angels, he tells them to go to Galilee. Like the angels, he says, do not be afraid. But unlike the angels, get this, he doesn't call the apostles the disciples. He calls them the brothers. My brothers. In other words, another tension has been resolved. They're forgiven. I still love them like a brother. Even though they all ran, and even though Peter denied me three times, they're my brothers. Is that not the love of Christ? Go tell my brothers. He identifies with the brothers. As Martin Luther said on this text, he said, Brethren in the flesh have common possessions, have together one father and one inheritance. And the statement that they're his brothers, he's not just telling, he's not just identifying with them, he's indicating audibly to these women that the disciples, the brothers, the apostles are going to share in the inheritance that he just earned. They, we have an equal inheritance as brothers. So go tell my brothers. They failed, but there's still a reward for them. And that reward has been purchased by the blood of the cross. And he tells the ladies to go to Galilee and tell the brothers that the Savior is risen and that the brothers will see Jesus. And mentioning Galilee and the disciples, the brothers, it's like a dream. It's like a dream. Having suffered as they all did, having gone through this gamut of emotions over this last week as they all have, having known that the brothers have run and fled, that Peter has denied him, that one of them has killed himself, and having remembered the sweet times on the green grass of Galilee. The family is going to be reunited on the rolling hills of Galilee. And there will be the brothers. And there will be the disciples. And there will be the resurrected Jesus. All is well that ends well. And this ends well. Christ is risen. The storm is calmed. The apostles are forgiven. The ladies who sought him found him. And Christ, our good shepherd, will regather his scattered little flock 
on the green grass of Galilee. Some points of application. You must believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ to be a Christian. God is gracious to His dear children who backslide. Have you been taken in sin and denied your Savior? Well, why don't you come and find Him? No, no. Seek Him and He will find you and meet you. And He will regather you with His flock. And He will lead you by still waters in lush pastures. And you'll be able to feast on the green grass that He grows you. And better days are yet to come. The Good Shepherd will gather and unify His people on the grass by still waters, and His elect will come in. And despite the present darkness, all will end well. Because the whole story is about the King that gathers His people forever. The King that brings peace to His people. The King that rewards the ones that seek Him in the storm. And the king that forgives the cowards that run when they shouldn't have. The whole story is about the king. And the whole thing tells us, as Jesus told us early on in the story, if you seek him, you will find him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for our Lord Jesus the good shepherd who cares for us. And I pray that you would reward everyone here who seeks him by finding him. Oh, Jesus, would you meet with your people? Would you meet us? Would you meet us and lead us to that peaceful habitation that you have for us? When once again, we're all together and we eat with you and we feast with you and we enjoy the presence of our King who is over all, and it's in Christ's name we pray.